0: Listeners, I'm on maternity leave right now, but I wanted to share something very cool with you today in lieu of a regular episode. It's an excerpt from Finding Normal, Sex, Love, and Taboo in Our Hyper-Connected World. It's the brand new book by Alexa Sulis-Ray, and it's an up-close tour of people who are using the internet to challenge the boundaries of what's taboo and what it means to be normal. Each story in Finding Normal Intimately immerses the reader in the world of a person who is grappling with a unique set of circumstances relating to sexuality. If that sounds fascinating to you, as it certainly does to me, you can buy Finding Normal at your local bookstore, Amazon, or wherever you get your books. Also, this might be kind of obvious, but if you're listening out loud with kids or family, you might want to skip to another episode. It was early fall and I was in a heavily air-conditioned room on a sprawling university campus, surrounded by block-sized frat houses and foraging squirrels, when I was sent back in time to what it was like to try to bypass the teachings of your immediate environment, find community, and connect with like-minded people about 30 years ago, before ubiquitous Internet. More specifically, I was looking through the polyamory collection in the archives at the Kinsey Institute, on a mission to find out when and how the concept of consensual non-monogamy, or open marriage, came to be known in the mainstream. I knew that the internet had given this relationship template a much wider reach, but I wanted to know how people outside coastal cities or college towns in Middle America, rural locations and Bible belts, got information and made connections before chat rooms, meet-up groups and online dating apps. Consensual non-monogamy is an umbrella term used to describe a spectrum that challenges the idea that a romantic or sexual relationship should be strictly between two people. It incorporates polyamory, which literally means many loves, and usually describes people in open and approved emotional or sexual relationships with more than one person. But there are many ways to be consensually non-monogamous people might say they're monogamish, a term coined by the sex columnist Dan Savage to refer to couples who might allow for occasional extramarital sex or have some sort of open marriage. You could be into swinging or the lifestyle, which usually refers to couples who enjoy having extramarital sex but aren't so much drawn to emotional or romantic relationships. The basic premise of consensual non-monogamy is that intimacy with other people is permissible if discussed and talked about openly, that it's unfair to expect one partner to fulfill all your romantic or sexual needs, and the idea of true love with a soulmate who can complete you is a cultural script that society expects everyone to blindly follow. I searched through the boxes of material curated by Ken Haslam, a retired anesthesiologist, an enthusiastic, consensual non-monogamy advocate. He'd photocopied material on the subject from textbooks and encyclopedias in case one day all the books in the world disappeared. The Continuum Complete International Encyclopedia of Sexuality charts the history of the term open marriage and references the 1972 bestseller, Open Marriage, A New Lifestyle for Couples, which brought the concept of non-monogamy into the mainstream. So in the early 1970s, it was paper and ink that disseminated the information to households across America. Open marriage was covered in mainstream media back then, fueled by the sexual revolution with its cries of free love. The word polyamory wasn't used, though. Next, I found a DVD of an interview Haslam did with a woman named Jennifer L. Wesp, who is credited by the Oxford English Dictionary, which included the word in its 2006 edition as the first to use the term. She explains how she was a college student in 1992, online, having a flame war, an online fight, about open relationships on the alt-sex news group, when she typed the word for the very first time. Non-monogamy was too long, and she wanted to use more positive language. There were boxes of information about The Ethical Slut, A Guide to Infinite Sexual Possibilities. It was published in 1997 and came to be known as the Bible of Polyamory. The authors, Janet Hardy, who used a pseudonym for the book's first edition, and Dossie Easton, turned on their head myths about jealousy, true love, and sexual desire. Their mission, to shatter the fundamental idea that the ideal relationship is long-term and monogamous and that true love is the result of a lifelong connection between just two people who forsake interest in anyone else forever. They rejected the idea, promoted by romantic songs and film and TV, that true love conquers all, And they laughed at one of the central components of the myth of monogamy, that there's one perfect person out there who can complete us. For Hardy and Easton, our culture is monogamy-centrist. In fact, monogamy is a cultural construct that had led us to assume that any relationship not geared toward lifetime bonding has failed. The human capacity for love, sex, and connection is infinite but most people have been schooled so hard in monogamy that they submerge their identities and relationships, which is psychological suicide. The ethical part of their name meant that abundant love should be practiced responsibly, with openness and communication. Hardy and Easton's book was revolutionary stuff, using the tone of a pair of fed-up sluts who were possibly writing from bed in a post-coital daze. I'm in the bedroom right now. My life partner is in the bathroom, showering another woman's juices off his skin, they write in one early chapter. They were on a mission to normalize sexuality and introduce the people of mainstream America to a concept called sex positivity, which was first used by educators at the National Sex Forum in the 1960s. (laughs) Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Sex positivity is a commitment to the belief that sex is a positive force in our lives. Someone who is sex positive is open-minded and non-judgmental about consensual sexuality, whatever form it may take. The Encyclopedia of Sexuality also referred to a psychologist named Deborah Annapol, as a leader of the contemporary polyamory movement that emerged in the 1990s. Her book, Love Without Limits, a guide to managing open marriages, got widespread media coverage when it was first published in 1992. She also helped found an alternative magazine about polyamory, and ran an early online resource network for people interested in opening up their marriage. I found piles of 1990s magazines with cover stories about consensual non-monogamy or open marriage. It was as if editors at all the glossies had a meeting and decided they must all have a take on this new phenomenon. And frankly, you'd be forgiven for thinking that there was a virus threatening marriages across the nation— In the summer of 1990, Glamour magazine asked, Can lovers cheat and still be faithful? A few years later, Cosmopolitan covered it in sensational, woman-shaming fashion, with the cover line, Married with lover, who is someone else's husband. Consensual non-monogamy was having another media moment, but just like in the 1970s, it was firmly seen as a threat to that omnipresent relationship model, monogamous marriage. Talk shows were also thirsty for this sort of material. They embraced the conversation about consensual non-monogamy, but largely with a sneer, presenting those in open relationships as abnormal, or to be more specific, deviant, oversexed, and possibly insane. They usually featured Deborah Annapol and her colleagues Barry Northrup and Ryan Nearing before a horrified audience, who stood in for the viewers at home. It was easy to imagine the producer's thought process. Annapol and company were white, professional, well-dressed, and articulate heterosexual men and women. These weren't unrelatable, bearded, and shaggy free-love hippies shacked up in yurts somewhere in California— They were maybe even people whom magazine editors and TV producers would socialize with. On her talk show in 1992, the comedian Joan Rivers plays the jaded single, who can't imagine why anyone would jeopardize their marriage by having sex with other people. On this show, the non-monogamous are oversexed and greedy. They hoard lovers. I'm dating, she says amid a performative dry wretch, and I don't even want a man to say another woman is attractive. She lists all the problems. Jealousy, the impact on kids, what the neighbors will think, laundry. Two men? That's a lot of dirty jockstraps. How do you keep your calendar straight? But despite the shtick, she asks some sensible questions and seems intrigued by the arrangement. I know I sound stupid, but I loved when I was married that I could really trust this person. To which Annapol replies, Why can't you trust two people? Annapol explains that when she opened up her marriage, she charted a journey without a map. She didn't have any models. Until my book came out, there really was no other source to read about these things and understand there are other options. On Donahue, one of the most popular talk shows of the period, a more sensitive host does not make the reception any less brutal. A 22-year-old woman is especially outraged. I think these people are a little too old to be playing these games. Diseases, kids, grow up. The show ends with a man grumbling, that you haven't been able to find the beauty in a monogamous relationship. There's some deficiency in your personality. I went back to the piles of paper and magazines and found a whole box dedicated to Anna Paul. I paused on the letters that had come in response to her talk show appearances. There were so many that she'd even recorded the number of letters she received each time she appeared on a different show. After Donahue, she got at least one letter each day, but on busy days, it was more like ten. The letters weren't full of outrage, like those audience members cherry-picked on TV. Instead, people from across North America and even abroad offered moving, confessional, and sometimes desperate pleas for information about this script for a new way to be in the world. They were riddled with intimate details, often pages long, sometimes accompanied by Polaroid photos. The correspondents related to her, and when she spoke, they saw themselves or at least their ideas, reflected back on TV, maybe for the very first time. A man from Texas wrote, I should express the respect I have for you having the confidence to allow yourselves to be subjected to the public scrutiny which you faced by appearing on Donahue. Listening to you touched my heart. Those talk shows might have been sensational and hostile, But when people across the country watched this woman speak on their TV screens, they saw themselves for the very first time. And they reached out, eager to connect with a like mind. In a typewritten letter, a man from California wrote, I am pleased to find that someone else exists who believes as I do. They wanted connection. They wanted community. They wanted information. And they wanted to thank her for having the strength and courage to break a taboo and become the face of a new way of being normal. People told their life stories and offered details about their romantic and sexual histories, interests, and lifestyles as if she were a matchmaker. Maybe indicating a need to confess and be seen, many sent photographs. I am a red-headed empath. I love children and do not smoke or drink wrote a postal worker, who also provided two glossy self-portraits. A 36-year-old from rural Mississippi wrote about the trouble he and his wife had finding someone with whom they could develop a discreet relationship, owing to their professional reputations and the fact that they live in the Bible Belt. They included photos because they wanted to meet sex partners, but the pictures also showed Anna Paul that the letter writers— These anonymous men and women writing from afar were upstanding, respectable, normal people. For some, the challenge of connecting with like minds and sexual partners was the most frustrating. Even finding Annapol's name and address was an odyssey. I was glad to see your representatives on The Donahue Show several months ago, but I did not write to you then, because I wasn't prepared to deal with another disappointment about connecting with people, wrote one. There were many apologies for misspelling the organization's name, usually blaming it on the brief window of time they had to write the information down. A retired couple from Wyoming went on a hell of a quest for a connection with a third person to bring into their marriage they placed advertisements in magazines and newspapers, but they were unsuccessful. The woman who wrote the letter first saw Anna Paul on The Jerry Springer Show, a year before her 1992 Sally Jesse Raphael appearance, and made numerous calls to the network asking to connect with Anna Paul, but they were never passed on. It was sheer luck when, 12 months later, her husband came back from the kitchen and saw her name and address flash on the TV screen. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.